Good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, wherever you are today. Welcome to the Thought Leader's Voice. I'm Shabnam Ganga, Vice President of Marketing at iResearch Services and your host today. We are delighted to be joined for today's episode, B2B Marketing That Takes Care of Profits and People by Ochana Venket. Ochana Venket, Chief Marketing Officer at Trilegal, is one of India's leading B2B marketeers with a reputation for creating competitive advantage and sustainable growth. She has led marketing teams for leading technology, financial services, and legal companies to drive strategic initiatives and maximize profitability and growth. Ochana is also passionate about empowering women and encouraging them to seize their careers. She has written a book, created a career management framework, and founded a support group for women professionals in Bangalore. We are delighted to welcome Ochana to this Thought Leadership Podcast as we consider B2B marketing that takes care of profits and people. Welcome, Ochana. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you so much, Shabnam. Thank you for that very generous introduction. I feel like you're talking about another person, but I'm very happy that (laughs) this is all me. So thank you so much once again and lovely to be a part of this podcast with you. Fantastic. No, it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. So I'll kickstart. I'm really super excited about this. So I'll dive straight into the questions. So during your career, you have led and been part of marketing teams for top technology, financial services and legal companies in India. What are the secrets of success in running a B2B marketing department? Your teams have generated a 20 times return on investment. Please, can you provide some key takeaways on how this can be achieved? Sure. I'll start with your first question. What are the secrets of running a successful B2B marketing department? I think the first thing is about having clarity on the objectives that the team has to meet. The second would be knowing the strengths, the personal and professional strengths of your colleagues in the marketing team. Successful marketing teams also need a strong leader who is invested in their success and will be their voice in places of power, such as the boardroom. To address your second question, great return on investment comes when you're trying to accomplish a very challenging vision. And let's say you do that by offering a product or a service that's a game changer in the market. A good example of that is LinkedIn and how it chose to remain a platform for professionals and for a long time didn't really have direct competitors. And I'm sure if you were to speak to the marketing head of LinkedIn, they will tell you that they experienced superlative growth uh, in the initial decade of their existence. So achieving high returns that are sustainable takes time and one needs to keep the big picture in mind. Often I've seen marketers, including myself, we tend to get involved in the smaller details. So sometimes it's good to step back and ask everyone in the team, why are we doing this? How do we intend to do this? And what's really the value this is going to add to the larger business vision? And beyond that, a lot of success is due to luck and having a supportive business team that really shares that vision and is willing to stand by your experimentation and validate your approach. No, I love that. It's a great point that you make on the success within a marketing team or within any business. It really comes down to a strong leader who not only you believe in, but 
they also believe in you and are invested in you and your teams. I really think that support is extremely important. But thanks for that. What part do business partnerships play in the process? How does a company go about forming strategic alliances? Did your tactics change during COVID-19 lockdowns when face-to-face meetings were restricted? Sure. I think business partnerships are integral to any business, essentially, to remain competitive and deliver outcomes. In the case of marketing, it's even more important to build an ecosystem of partners who can help you in areas that are either not your team's core competencies or where you have a gap in competencies that you currently aren't able to address. But the biggest value that partners bring is to tell people like us on the business side, what is the market doing? Help us understand trends so that we can respond appropriately. Most marketing teams today you will see are relatively lean and in the absence of a strong ecosystem of partners, it's very challenging to deliver a competitive advantage. Right. Uh, Now for your second question, uh, did your tactics change during COVID? I think COVID changed every company's go-to-market strategy. It was no different with my previous employer. I was with another organization during COVID. We understood that COVID was an opportunity to improve our relationship with clients beyond transactional matters. Clients were looking for advice for their own operations and short-term survival. And they were very open to any kind of content, particularly long format content. They wanted closed door discussions with us. So from a marketing standpoint, we had the opportunity to identify and focus on those needs and channels that were really working for us. So let me give you an example. Uh, We were one of the earliest in the professional services ecosystem in India to start with webinars. And we were able to secure 100 plus attendees for each session organically. And we were holding sessions every fortnight. Six months later, we started sending out white papers and insights-based reports when we realized that interest levels for webinars would drop very soon because several other companies had also started organizing webinars. And thereafter, we switched to short videos that we sent via WhatsApp, interactive content that went through WhatsApp. And on a lighter note, I would say the pandemic was the only time that our business teams understood the full potential of marketing, right from demand generation, lead qualification, lead nurturing to conversation, and eventually to a sales conversion. We were, I guess, the only team that was overworked during the pandemic. So that I would say was a was an interesting observation for our business teams during the pandemic. No, really, really interesting. And I I really think this resonates with a lot of people out there that have had to, I guess, pivot. You make an interesting point here about being ahead of the game and pivoting, you know, knowing your competitors will start doing the same. I believe it's still very valid in today's ecosystem. Businesses are constantly trying to stay ahead. But actually speaking with your partnerships and building that rapport can help you understand trends early on, which you sort of mentioned I also love the fact that you're using methods that are convenient to your consumers, such as WhatsApp Messenger, something that I would say we've not considered or I've not considered in previous places. So I think that's fantastic that you've pivoted considering the pandemic and how you really understood the needs. And I really like the fact that you mentioned about on the lighter term with the pandemic, that businesses have really understood the potential of marketing. I think in the past we've done marketing, but we've had to really pivot because of what's happening. So 
really valid points there. And I think really great for our listeners to deep dive and consider those takeaways. This sort of moves me quite nicely into the next question. How do you ensure business partnerships are lasting ones? You know, I have always felt partnerships are very contextual. So in that sense, not all business partnerships can be lasting ones or even need to be lasting ones. So let me give you an example. You could have someone who works on designing standees and backdrops for you as part of events that you drive. But if that vendor, that person doesn't innovate and keeps repeating themselves, you would eventually end that partnership and find a replacement. Right. And similarly, let's say you have a database management agency. Then if any of your listeners are career marketers with over 20 years of experience, they would recognize an era where data and marketing wasn't big. Right. And we relied on database management agencies uh, to keep data up to date, refreshed, weed out duplicates and all of that. So today, if you have a database management agency and you're transitioning to a CRM model, a client relationship platform, which say has built-in artificial intelligence for data enrichment, then the utility of that agency will be questioned. The value that they will bring in this context will be questioned. In my career, many times I've started with one-time requirements that turned into multi-year relationships. A good example, in fact, is with your own salesperson, Akash Gaurav, uh, who I first interacted with in 2016 for a survey. So what started with when one survey went on to become two surveys and now I'm talking to him again six years later for a very different kind of a requirement. The bottom line is the kind of partnerships that can become long lasting are those where both parties have a commitment to innovate and stay relevant, whether that is process improvement, offering a new product or a service or any other kind of an improvement. So I guess that's the only way one can ensure that a business partnership is lasting, that you don't take each other for granted and both of you stay committed to the big picture. Yeah, I agree with that. There's been businesses that I still speak to and keep in touch with, as you never know when you may end up requiring services. Um, I also believe it's very important to raise that even if you have competitors you deal with in your industry, you kind of need to manage those relationships delicately as you just never know who they might know in the industry as well and whether you cross paths in the future. So I really think it's really important to have that relationship, build on that relationship, but that commitment and and knowing that there might be some elements where you might end up doing work together or collaborating in the future. And as you mentioned, you know, with, with our gosh, I think it validates where that can go, you know, six years on and you're still working together, which is fantastic. So no, great, great points there. Moving on to the next question, you have extensive experience in content marketing and have been named among India's top 100 content marketeers. Your current role at Trilegal includes brand building. What are the most important tips you can pass on about effective content marketing and brand building? Sure, let me start with brand building. Effective brand building starts when you can identify non-negotiables associated with your brand, right? These are, say, the values and the spirit of your people. Once that is clear, it's important to keep revisiting, going back to these every time you develop a campaign, just to see if you're highlighting these values or you're actually deviating from them, in which case you would need to post correct. 
for instance, I have worked in two competing firms with very different cultures. And we were able to translate those cultures distinctly for clients. So one of the firms I worked in was a market leader and the other one was a relative maverick. So the non-negotiables for both these brands were very different. And our communication, therefore, was different. We did very few events at the, the former organization, which was a market leader. And we did tons of events for the, for the relative maverick firm because that focused on the experience rather than just the content. So once the brand values are very clear, how you want to see the brand also becomes very clear. And thereafter, what kind of content to use, what channels to use is just a derivative of that. Now, coming to content marketing, I think the most important thing is to discover what your clients want and give it to them straight. Right. So, for example, in the initial stages of the customer journey, we would create content that was very clear on what is the expected action. Right. So let's take the example of filing taxes. So if you're filing taxes, how should you go about picking an accountant? So that's the content that we would typically put out. What aspect should you consider when you're trying to hire an accountant for your business? Now, once that's very clear and the client or the prospect is say looking for the next stage of information. Now, we don't know at this point in time if they want to even hire an accountant from outside or they want their in-house team to itself go ahead and do this work. So typically, the next content would talk about, say, three things to remember if you were filing taxes yourself. And in the last stage, we would actually introduce something like a self-assessment tool to show that individual whether he or she had the confidence to sort of make it through this tax season. So here you'd see we're not really selling anything, but we're just trying to tell them that we've done this, we have experience and we are okay if you don't want to work with us, but you might want to use some of our frameworks, you know, our benchmarking tools and so on and so forth. That kind of content marketing is helpful because you've put the client's interests before yours. And I'd like to say that Interestingly, this I've seen over the years is a very different approach from what happens in B2C marketing, where, you know, creating anticipation for the product or the service is where the bulk of your energies and your budget is spent. Now, once that product is launched, then your sales and channel partners sort of get active, they would list it. And then, you know, after the first month, if your sales have been poor, then the next set of content marketing essentially would be on ads influencer content to keep pushing for the product or services visibility especially online these days and let's say in a quarter your content marketing will slowly start pivoting towards discounts the tone of your emails would be look we launched this this has been a blockbuster success now there's a this this is all you have so just pick it up before it all gets sold or some kind of discount communication. And they need to do this because your inventory needs to be cleaned out. It needs to be managed for the next season's products and services to come by, which is, I would say, very, very different from B2B, where you launch a service, it stays around for at least a couple of years before you're very, very certain that there's really no market for this. So from a content standpoint, I, I would say that would be a big difference from how B2C content marketing is done. No, great insights, Arjuna. I want to take it back to brand. I think it's so important and living and breathing these values really helps scope plans and work better 
you know, with other stakeholders. We're a thought leadership agency and content is everything we do. We live and breathe it. So understanding what our clients and customers want and need is essential, not only just to help them, but also to help us to write more reports or white papers and deliver those insights that are key to our audience. So I really love that concept of you have to really hold those strong values. And I think brands are constantly developing as well with the landscape. They have to to keep changing because of the way that the consumers want to work with or they require specific services. And, And I agree, B2C industries are very different. The life cycle is slightly different. So yeah, no, great points that you've raised there and really good takeaways for sure on the non-negotiables. So moving on to the next question, as well as maximizing business profitability, it is important to you that marketing teams follow ethical principles. What does this mean in practical terms? What benefits does this bring to a company both internally and externally? Great question, Shapna. Ethics in any department are shaped by the culture and the ethics of the business and its leaders. So if you have a leader or a promoter with a very strong ethical or moral quotient, then that will influence all decisions that the company takes and how it functions, including marketing. For instance, let's say you would request for invoices for every spend and expect that the line items are listed accurately for what they are. So let's say you purchased ad space in a company that was very ethical, you would not be allowed to list that as a PR expense. You will need to be transparent about your decision-making processes. Often professional services business that I've spent over a decade of my career in are held to the highest standards and inherently certain activities are not permitted. There are also checks and balances to ensure transparency and ethical business practices across all departments. On the other hand, if you have a leader, a CEO, a promoter, who doesn't have a very strong ethical compass and wants, let's say, returns at all costs, right? Profit before purpose, something like that. Then every department begins to function less ethically and marketing isn't going to be very different in that case. I've realized ethics is also a very personal issue. I've seen many peers who've been unable to work effectively in new organizations because the organization's ethical compass and their own didn't really match. So for me, I believe being ethical may sometimes result in short-term loss of opportunity, but in the long term, clients will give you business. They will appreciate you for the position you've taken, which is to be ethical and fair. Yeah, I think we could talk on days about this. Yeah. I believe this is really vital for many marketeers, but also C-suite audiences. Actually, in our recent report, How Sustainable is the Technology Sector? This isn't officially out just yet. But 58% of respondents said that employees will work harder for a business they believe is operating sustainably. Businesses are realizing the importance of ethical and environmentally conscious business decisions and how this may affect their ability to attract and retain new staff. We spoke to companies with belief that following sustainability practices can motivate the employees to work harder as the same value is being shared between the company and the employees. This value stands out the most in India, where 78% of respondents selected this as a key value that sustainability can bring to their businesses. 
followed by 68% in China and 66% in the USA. So that statistic yeah. there really deep dives and, and there's a lot there in, in that report. But that's just something that I wanted to pull out with this because I do think that, you know, there's different ways that ethics can really add value and hold value in businesses, but also with that individual, you know, and I think you've really hit the nail on the head looking at it from a business perspective and also a personal perspective. So, yeah, great points raised in that. That's a very interesting statistic, Shabnam. I I don't know. Perhaps it would be nice to see if that's the sentiment across all family-run businesses, the countries that have family-run businesses. I've observed in India, we have several family-run businesses, tons and tons of them. And sometimes Mm -hmm. uh, employee productivity tends to be better because you know what values that family stands for. And you're very clear when you join a workplace like that as to what to really expect. So perhaps if you have any data on that, on whether people feel the ethics and purpose, the entire purpose factor is clearer and better in family-run businesses or vice versa, that that would be interesting to look at. Yeah, I, I do think that would be quite good because I also feel I've worked for a lot of family businesses in the past and I have to say they're very global as well. And I think maintaining those ethics and principles is so important, but also not just when you're onboarding, but when you meet your fellow team members or people that you actually don't even collaborate much with. But I think it's really important and it goes back to the the brand and the values of that that business owner or that leader, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast. I think that holds really deep values. But I do think when you know someone on a personal level and say you are working with them or in any shape, form, I think that would be really good for us to further explore. So yeah, definitely something we will absolutely look into to and this report will be available in the next month or so so to our listeners keep your eyes peeled we will definitely talk about it but there's a lot of good statistics in there and findings that I think a lot of businesses will take away and and really hopefully try and implement and make change for a positive way so yeah love that moving on to the next question another key focus for you is empowering women in the workforce And you have written a book about it titled Seize Your Career, as well as created the career management framework, The Happy Hexagon. What are the biggest barriers women face in progressing in their careers and how can they overcome them? Can marketing leaders better integrate women into their teams? Thank you for that question. I often get asked the first part of the question, which is, you know, which are really the biggest barriers that women face in progressing in their careers? I feel three of the biggest barriers created by women for themselves include a low risk appetite, a limited planning, and not building a network of professionals who can help them in their careers. Women often fear additional responsibility that comes with career progression because they probably don't know how to make it work. And not having a network of people to reach out to means you don't get to voice those concerns and find solutions and suggestions to help you manage the change. In many cases, I've seen women simply fail to plan for the obvious future. Now, I've seen this happen in the case of childcare, where most women, at least in India, will not use the maternity leave to get themselves and their families accustomed to, say, a babysitter or a creche or basically a new routine. The new routine would start when the women resume work and things are bound to go wrong because there was really no testing period prior to that. So suddenly you have stress at work. 
induced by poor planning at home and you're unable to manage either of them effectively. And where you don't have a supportive family, there's a lot of pressure to either extend your maternity leave or just quit. So I think there's a lot that women can do to overcome some of these barriers of their own. Of course, there will remain the institutional barriers that women face at work. And those will be harder to get rid of because they're shaped by years and years of culture, culture at the workplace, culture in society and biases that people sort of get to work. And these are challenging for one woman at an individual level to sort of tackle. So what women, I believe, can do is start looking at some of these self-imposed barriers, barriers that they end up unwittingly creating for themselves. So you get rid of that, you're able to demonstrate to your colleagues and to your peers that you have things under control. You are willing and capable of taking on this additional responsibility, whether that's a new role, whether that's an extension of your existing role or a very different role in itself. On your second question, I think marketing and HR are two functions that in recent times have seen more women than men. An article in the Harvard Business Review called these functions the pink ghetto that over time saw erosion in salaries simply because men were moving to other roles outside these departments. So the money sort of followed the men. So I don't know if it's necessarily a good thing to have one function or one department you know, dominated by one gender. I would say instead of saying how marketing leaders can enable more women to participate in the workforce, I would say all leaders have to prioritize a diverse workforce. And they can they can do that by first being human and understanding what their team really needs. What has really worked for me is allowing women flexibility to chart their own course and manage their deliverables. I stay away from micromanaging and making assumptions on what one can do and cannot do. And I've simply presented opportunities to my entire team. That way, I know those who are interested, who can step up, will seize those opportunities. But I do acknowledge that women need more nurturing and display of support from their managers. I've had two wonderful bosses who were my voice in the boardroom and never made me feel that I was failing or I was unimpressive. I've seen many leaders complain about the extra time that they had to spend with women, boosting their confidence and reviewing their work and all of that. But I think that's the way trust is built. And women need a little more of that nurturing than perhaps what a man might need. Yeah, I think that's really good insights there. And and I love the fact that you mentioned like from a cultural standpoint and the kind of breaking the, the bias out there. I think they're really important factors that can be contributing to the diversity within a workforce or within teams. I saw a quote of yours actually talking about your book, Seize Your Career, which was, as women, we need to seize our careers and shape them in a manner that satisfies our ambitions. I absolutely love this energy and 100% agree. I think also that trust element is so important. And I think a lot of people can resonate with, you know, when you do have a wonderful boss, it really does make a huge impact to not just you as an individual, but also to the rest of the team. You know, I think that's something which doesn't really require as much time. It's just, as you said, being human first and understanding what your staff actually need goes a long way. So I think there are fantastic points there that will resonate with a lot of our listeners. Thank you for that. Going on to the next question, 
Five years ago, you founded the Women Leaders of Sarjapur Road Group in Bangalore. What are its aims? Can you provide some examples of how it has helped female leaders progress in their careers? Sure. So I started this group with the objective of creating a safe space for women wanting to grow into senior leadership positions, but just didn't know how to or didn't have the support system to enable them to grow into those these roles, essentially. We started with 100 women in the first year, and we've collectively worked with over 300 women in the last five years. And what we essentially do is we help them boost their confidence. We help them reskill and upskill in some cases. We've held different types of sessions for them. So there are awareness sessions where we bring in external speakers from the industry, say specialists like yourself, if someone wanted to know how they could grow, let's say, in market research as an industry. We've done smaller sessions called huddle sessions where a member has actually posed a challenge and sought perspectives from others. So I've had in the past women coming up and saying, how do I negotiate a salary better? Is there a way I can escape uh, salary benchmarking based on what I was earning in my previous job. So we've had very specific pointed discussions there. And we've also had, uh, you know, speed networking sessions where new members who've come in and have just wanted to know who else is part of the group. What do they do? How can we really leverage each other's synergies? Right. So we've done some of that. Some of our members were very successfully able to find jobs through our member network itself. Some were able to return to work full-time. Some have gone on to start their own businesses. And today, many are in the C-suite like I am. Now, I can't claim complete credit for their career transitions, but I know that the group has played a very important part in boosting their confidence and improving their negotiation skills. I love that. I think we, we need more of this in the world. I know there's a lot of forums out there and there are loads of other groups, but I think especially with women trying to progress into a leadership position or at least at a point where, you know, it's a managerial position. I think this is fantastic. And I think the different type of sessions that you, you know, you you held and do hold, I think they're they're fantastic. How can people actually join this if they were interested? Oh, great. So this group is now part of a Lean-In City chapter, uh, part of Lean-In Bangalore. So they could just go on the Lean-In Bangalore page and sign up for it online. It's, it's fairly simple. And there's, there's no membership fee or anything that's involved. Fantastic. No, definitely we'll put this out there. I think a lot of people would benefit and I think it's a wonderful thing that you've started and you're building on, which is amazing. No, thank you so much. You've been fantastic and extremely fascinating. We'd love to get you on again, Janath. Thank you so much for your time and insights. I really hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I, I did. I absolutely did, Shabna. Thank you. I think these were some great questions. You don't hear too many people uh, asking these questions, but I'm glad you did. And I hope my answers were satisfactory and, and will be valuable to some of your listeners. So thank you once again for this wonderful opportunity. No, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. And, and thank you so much again. And to our listeners, I hope it's definitely been insightful for me. Um, we hope this has been really educational and, and useful also to our listeners. So thanks once again and look forward to speaking with you soon. Likewise. Thank you so much. <laughs>